HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Hungry Root. Clean ingredient, nutrient-dense food that's on your plate in under 10 minutes. Hungry Root makes eating healthy easy with fresh pre-prepared ingredients that turn into delicious, nutritionally balanced meals in minutes. Hungry Root is healthy food for life. For more information, visit HungryRoot.com. That's H-U-N-G-R-Y-R-O-O-T dot com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, we say open sesame to tahini, the principal product behind Sum Foods, the sister-owned company creating pantry staples. Shelby and Amy are here. Jackie, hello. Um, the Zeitman sisters. Source their single-origin sesame seeds from, is it Humera, Ethiopia? Yeah. Um, and process the pace in Israel, and after nearly 6,000 miles of transport, their premium sum tahini, and that chocolate sweet tahini halva spread, which I love, um, finds its way to Philadelphia, and then into our homes and hearts. So, of course, you can make hummus with a spoonful of sum, but tahini is an indispensable pantry ingredient for vinaigrettes, sauces, you know, spread it on toast with honey, bacon, and a banana bread, falafel sandwiches, and even chocolate chip cookies. So try some sum. And you'll see the power of sesame. So thank you, Amy and Shelby. Thank, thank you for so having much. us. So we're, we're first going to start about that last name, because I'm going to make a, a leap here and assume that you're Jewish. Yes. That's right. Because <laughs> <laughs> my first instance ever with tahini was, I think, my 13th birthday. I must have done something wrong. Uh, <laughs> or my parents just didn't plan anything. I have a late summer birthday right before school starts again. And we went to Connecticut and spent it with my great uncle Mutt. And he didn't know it was my birthday, but he had a halva bar in his pocket, and he gave it to me. And I'm like, what the heck is this? I didn't open it. And then later during the meal, he ate it. Um, <laughs> but I had a little nip. Like, I had a little bite. And I said, wow, this is really delicious. What is it? And he's like, oh, it's tahini. Sesame tahini. I'm like, okay. And then I didn't think about it for years. And then 
the hummus explosion. I don't know when that actually happened, but everyone it's 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 almost ubiquitous in everybody's kitchen mm-hmm. in, in everybody's fridge. But is tahini? Hopefully. Did, yeah. Did you grow up in a Jewish household eating tahini or sesame based products? Jewish household, yes. Tahini, <laughs> no. No. I mean, my memory only in retrospect is similar to yours of halva. Uh, it was our grandfather that used to pick up a bar of Joyva halva when we would go to the deli, Woodside Deli. Um, and I don't know actually if I even tried it. I just watched him eat it. Otherwise, my, my this is Shelby speaking, um, you know, understanding of, of tahini was a weird white sauce that you would drizzle on falafel. Or I knew intellectually that it went into hummus, but we never made our own hummus in, in our household grilling. Well, you're up. from in and around Philadelphia, correct? We actually grew up in Rockville, Maryland, so in the D.C. area. But our mom is from Philadelphia, so we have tons of family there. So my, my association, at least with the city of brotherly love, is things like cream cheese. Mm-hmm. Uh, wit whiz, you know, ordering steaged, uh, steak and cheese steaks uh, correctly. Um, what were the foods that were inherently surrounding you or in your kitchen when you were growing up? Take it away, Amy. I'm def- I was trying to defer to Shelby <laughs> because she's the oldest. But, you know, we came from a really traditional... Uh, conservative Jewish family. Our mom, we joke, has like just um, a a strategy for Shabbat dinner, which is a protein, a starch, a cooked vegetable, and a salad. Usually a very good soup to start too. So we really came from, I would say, not even a foodie background. Um, What's actually unique about the circumstances, our father grew up in the restaurant industry. Our grandfather Mm -hmm. had a restaurant in D.C. called Bassins. And so because our father grew up in the restaurant industry, we were not allowed to enter it. Uh, As you can probably imagine... Well, I mean, the exchange of money, often it was the woman who was actually able to accept dirty dollar bills here in New York while the men sat in back and cooked. Because I think my great uncle Mud actually cooked in my grandma's diner in West Hartford, Connecticut as oh, well. interesting. Yeah. Our, our grandmother did the books for Bassins, but our grandfather was actually more front of house. Yeah. Uh, it was his cousin Max Bassin, which is how the restaurant came to be, uh, you know, managed back of house. Yeah, I don't think, I know for a fact neither of them could cook. So (laughs) it wasn't inherited from that side of the family in terms of our our mom's kitchen. I mean, she was just, you know, classic chicken dishes, amazing brisket. I don't even know if it was passed down from her mother. Like, it's interesting. I'd I'd be curious to explore, like, the heritage of cooking in our family because it wasn't such a strong chain between the kitchen and Shabbat meals with like a family history or or heritage per se. Well, there there wasn't this strong, you know, heritage with tahini either, which is now what your family name is known for, at least in Philadelphia, (laughs) soon to be the world. Um, how, How did we leap all the way there if you were pushed away from the restaurant industry, maybe even culinary industry as a whole? Mm hmm. So the um the legacy that we did inherit from our parents and grandparents was a legacy of business. Both of our parents are were uh, business owners, and so that took me uh, to study business undergraduate uh, in college, and I pursued a degree in entrepreneurial management, which at the time my parents were like, what are you going to do with that? But what I really loved was this whole um, notion of how you take an idea and turn that into a business plan. And so that degree took me to a couple of jobs following college, one of which landed me in Israel around the time that Jackie, hi Jackie, hi JJ, (laughs) first started dating Omri, who's now her husband. And um, Omri was buying and selling tahini, tahina, 
throughout Israel. And so got to meet Omri, got to try the product that he was selling, and it was unlike anything I had ever tried and really blew away my conceptions of what I thought tahini was supposed to be. It was nutty. It was rich. I wanted to eat it with a spoon or just dip a piece of bread straight into it. And so compared that to what the previous right notion of, of tahini Sorry, was. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. We weren't going to say any Yeah, names. well, I mean, I, I have such, well, even recent memories when I, I did know about Zoom, opening up that can and mm. you hear the pop of it seemingly being fresh, but it always tasted kind of stale. Or how much oil might have been on top and how hard it was at the bottom. And everybody had a very similar experience when we started talking to people. If they even knew what tahini was, you know, their experience with it was was kind of tough. Uh, They maybe bought it only to make hummus. They left in their refrigerator afterwards and typically threw it away after six months because they couldn't even stir it up to use it again. So that was really what was exciting to us was if people knew what tahini was, there wasn't somebody that was introducing them with a, you know, a good one, or they didn't know all the ways that they could use it. Well, luckily, Omri, the sesame expert, mm-hmm. married into the family, and then you had somebody to, to, you know, fill you with that kind of knowledge, because let's take a step away from tahini for a second. Uh, what's a sesame? Mm-hmm. What does it look like? Where does it grow? I've asked so many people this in the past few weeks just to gauge, and it, it, it is a very foreign concept. Yeah, it's something that was, um, to be honest, unfamiliar to us, but something that we are really inspired by. Um, the sesame se- So sesame seeds grow on stalks that actually look like wheat. And in northwest Ethiopia, in the Humera region, it is fields and fields, miles and miles as far as the eye can see. The sesame seeds grow in pods that kind of look like raw okra at the end of these stalks. And when it's ready and when they're being harvested all by hand, might I say, I mean, we could talk about the sesame harvest in Ethiopia for hours, um, but those pods actually open up when they're dry and ready. And then the sesame seeds just pour right out of them into your palm. It's really, really amazing to and, see. And this is one of the eldest domesticated oil crops in the world 300 i mean 3000 4000 years Maybe ago even 5000 yeah, yeah. Uh, who would ever see a sesame seed or a sesame seed pot or capsule at the time and say um, I'm going to turn this into tahini. I, yeah, I have this image in my head that like a donkey crushed a few sesame seeds and like it turned into this paste. I, I, that whole aspect of the history of tahini is really interesting to me. I have not done so much research into it, but I would love to do more because I, there's a big gap there between sesame, the um, you know stories of sesame being used for medicinal purposes, um, for ritual purposes, uh, etc., to then becoming this condiment that is a staple throughout the Middle East when the Middle East does not even grow sesame. Clearly, the spice trade is involved somewhere there. So there's so many questions to explore as it relates to sesame and how it then became tahini. Well, it was it was really interesting uh, having been in Japan recently. And I think Japan's the largest importer of sesame seeds in the world. Um, and Within you, China? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, maybe per capita. Mm-hmm. But you see sesame seeds on the outside of, you know, sushi rolls, but you, you cook with a lot of sesame oil. Um, and I just recently had a whole bunch of uh, Japanese food producers come to New York, in which I, I did a meal for. And I actually talked about tahini, or mm. your tahini, or the use of it in Middle Eastern cuisine, and they didn't know what it was. I said, wow, you guys are the largest importers of sesame and you don't know what tahini is. Could they have recognized it called sesame paste, maybe? I mean, that's yes, a name. Yes, they, they do. But I mean, I think sesame paste is also a different consistency mm-hmm. and used in so many different ways. Yes. Um, and, and tasting your tahini versus, you know, store-bought, too, is also, 
you know, such a leap. It's so exemplary compared to what I've had before. Um, and I was really excited to introduce that to them. Um, where is Tahini a foreign concept outside of maybe, you know, Northern Africa and Israel? Where in the world do you not see Tahini exist at all? Ethiopia, ironically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, um, Middle America. You know, people, there are so many places where sesame is a really important aspect of their culture and their cuisine, but they're not taking it to that tahini place. Um, you know, I've heard of uh, places in South America that use sesame seed in water for, you know, nutritional purposes or the, you know, Far East where they're using it for oil. Um, what's really exciting, though, about the Ethiopian sesame seed is it is um, uniquely cultivated for tahini pressing. So they're not pressing it into oil either because of the qualities of the seed and how great of a tahini that it can make. Um, but the, the, there are many places that don't know tahini, but all of them I think could easily start incorporating it more into their cuisine. And that's what really inspires us about the ingredient. Mm -hmm. I recently had some Oaxacan, you know, moles mm -hmm. that had tahini in them. Mm -hmm. um, and I also recently found out that 75% of the sesame seeds grown in Mexico are sold to McDonald's to top burger, burger buns. buns. I believe it. Yep. So like, it's such a weird disconnect. Yes. Early on, you know, when we were talking about sesame with people, we would say, you know, you might find it familiar on bagels, burger buns and sushi rolls. But the fact is that it actually presses down into the one of the most delicious, nutritious and versatile ingredients. And that is where the op is is the opportunity for Zoom that we haven't really even cracked the surface. You know, you talk about hummus, that's still the leading, you know, point in our conversations with people as we teach them about what tahini is. But like you said, salad dressing, sauces, marinade, dips, I mean, the baked goods, smoothies, I mean, the possibilities are really endless. It was funny in talking to my, my wife, um, she's like, we need more fiber, we need more calcium in our diet. And not not to drop a Zoom advertisement, I picked up that germ. Like, I think we have it right we here, honey. It. Naturally speaking. Yeah, it, it blew our minds in the early days when we would do, you know, a lot of fairs focused on vegetarian or vegan eating. And those people didn't know that tahini was even an option for their pantry. Like, you need this in your diet. You are not eating enough iron, right? Like, if you only want to eat kale, that's fine. But we're telling you that this is an amazing option to incorporate. And we believe we haven't even begun to skim the surface as it relates to the health benefits because we have been focusing so much on the um, food applications and the versatility of the product and how it can transcend cuisines, in our opinion. I mean, you can use it as a dairy substitute. You can use it as a nut butter substitute. So for any cuisine that is using, you know, those bases in their cooking, you might want to consider tahini instead. Lower in sugar, lower in saturated fat than peanut butter. Um, I, I make these Don Don noodles uh, at least once a year for Chinese New Year, and my friend can't eat peanuts. Mm -hmm. So I always make it with your tahini, and it's mind-blowing. And then I once made it with peanut butter, and it was just not nearly as good. And it's, maybe it was the sum. It's definitely a sophisticated flavor palette. A lot of people that taste it for the first time don't like it, but it's an acquired taste. It has a level of complexity that's different than peanut butter. You know, I, I've heard chefs say that it has an umami tendency to it. So it does perform different than peanut butter. It performs different than olive oil, but can be a substitute for both of those things and even butter. If you think a bit about it as a fat in your cooking, then you'll realize that you can put a little bit in anything. And what's amazing is that it doesn't overpower the flavor. It complements whatever else you're putting in that sauce. Excellent. We're going to take a quick break and then separate the brand from the kernel, or is it kernel from the brand? We'll, we'll, we'll clarify that after the break. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
Today's program was brought to you by Hungry Root. Last night I was in a rush, so I just heated up a smoky green lentil salad in a nonstick pan, and using the delicious dressing that salad was tossed with, and without cleaning the pan, I then fried an egg, because why waste that flavor? Hungry Root fits into your real, busy life. So when you have those hectic days, there's always healthy food at the ready. There's even great grab-and-grow options if you're back at the door, like cherry chia maple oatmeal, or take a Moroccan spice chickpea tagine for lunch or dinner. The other morning, I had a cup of mango cultured coconut cream with homemade granola. And needless to say, convenience has never been so easy. Oh, and that black bean brownie batter you've heard of? Well, you can eat it right out of the tub. You can't wait that 15 minutes for it to bake. Hurry up for $25 off two deliveries. That's $50 in savings by visiting hungryroot.com backslash food scene. That's H-U-N-G-R-Y-R-O-O-T dot com backslash F-O-O-D-S-E-E-N. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio has plenty more. Hi, I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I'm the host of Feast Your Ears here on HRN. My show explores the world of food through storytelling. Every week, I talk with people inside and outside the food world about how experience has shaped what they eat and cook. You can find Feast Your Ears wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm here with two out of three Zeitelman sisters of Soom Foods, the tahini-based company. But we'll, we'll talk about, is it Ceylon? Ceylon. We'll talk about that because I'm Great. very, very intrigued how you got from sesame to dates. Um, but let, let's go back to Ethiopia mm-hmm. and this Humera region and these sesame seed pods bursting in your hands. Uh, how do they get to Israel to get processed? Um, so right now we are working with Omri, our brother-in-law, uh, who has an Ethiopian business partner, and together they procure sesame through the Ethiopian Commodity Exchange. Um, actually, AIM can speak more to the way that the, the ECX works, but it is very difficult right now to develop direct relationships with farmers on the ground. That is a goal of ours one day. Um, but right now we are purchasing the sesame in bulk bags through the ECX, upon which they're then shipped to, to Israel. So you want to shed a little bit more light on the ECX? Yeah, I was in uh, the Humera region two years ago. Shelby and Jackie got to go this past harvest season. It's mid-October, and I was there two years ago. And as we're leaving the Humera region, the roads are lined with trucks, just empty trucks. And we said you know, to our driver, what are the trucks for? They said, oh, they're waiting for the sesame to be ready. And I was like, how are they going to find out that it's ready? Oh, it will just the word will just you know get around they'll start <laughs> passing it up you know and so you can just see these people waiting i mean so many people are involved in the trade from the thousands and thousands of farmers um, to the landowners, to the people that work at the commodity exchange. And so those um, seeds are bagged, cleaned a little bit and bagged close to the fields and then trucked to the public commodity exchange, which is a, a, a this many warehouses really outside of the region. And then from there, they're tested for a grade in that way that they know, you know, where it falls on this public commodity exchange. And similar to the, you know, stock market or something like that, people start bidding. So our first year in Ethiopia during this time, Omri and I went back in 2013. And um, sorry, it must have been 2012, November 2012. And it was a, a a national sesame conference going on. We couldn't even afford a ticket to attend. So we sat in the lobby of the hotel just to meet people. And there was a woman there, a Chinese buyer, and everybody pointed to her. They said, when she's ready to purchase, the prices just start going. And it was so fascinating. It was really my first realization of what it means to be working with a pub, you know, a, 
an internationally traded commodity. Uh, it's just fascinating. And, and that's sesame, but that's not necessarily tahini. Right. So you don't know what sources these go to. Are there higher prices for people uh, paying for sesame as is versus it then being processed in a plant? Yep. So there's a few processing plants in Ethiopia, but most are happening outside Ethiopia and really for the production of tahini. So mm -hmm. once it gets to its place of production, then it's cleaned more thoroughly, roasted, and then it goes through the pro, you know, the pressing process in terms of the equipment that then creates um, a drizzle, like no different than drizzling, well, very different than drizzling <laughs> out of our jar, but it just comes out fresh and warm straight from the manufacturing you know, equipment. It's amazing. Have you actually eaten off that line? I, I can see that being a stop on the tour of those processing plants. Yes, it's, absolutely. It's delicious. And one other thing that I wanted to add about, um, you know, the, the sesame and the finished product that's coming out of Ethiopia, currently the government is investing in ways to create more valuable goods and uh, further along the supply chain, because right now they're just exporting the seed as is. There are no finished products. Maybe you can get it clean. Maybe you can get it sorted. Maybe you could get it hulled, meaning taking the little shell off of the seed. But that's the extent to which they are selling this commodity so there is uh, they're exploring other ways that they can um, uh, commercialize sesame through other products do you see this being an advantage shortening the distance from you know it being out of pod into a processing plant or I, I know your product well enough that I can keep it out on the counter and it doesn't spoil so I, I don't feel like it's a perishability thing there no, I don't think it's perishability, um, but to be honest, food science is not yeah. my uh, my forte. Um, I do think it's just more uh, economic ad advantages for the country. And yeah, I mean, the more hands, as we've learned in our supply chain, the more hands that change as it relates to food, the more room there is for any type of error. So I do think that shortening the supply chain brings more jobs to Ethiopians who desperately need it, more money into, you know, into that country, and ultimately would translate into the, the consumer or, you know, buyer's hand um, on the other end of the ocean, wherever that may be. Well, let's talk about the hands that have Zoom here. Mm -hmm. um, and let's talk about the chefs who have championed this product, because uh, I think one of the first times I ever experienced it was through Michael Solomonoff, um, who was using it at Zahav, um, and now it's across his whole empire. I know Yehuda at Aben Fisher also loves your product, too. Um, outside of that, you know, Israeli cuisine or Jewish cuisine, what other chefs have used your product in interesting ways? That's a really great question. Uh, we were always so excited. I'll never forget da Danny Bowian from Mission Chinese brought it onto the menu. He had, uh, ironically, a tahina sauce, really a tahina dip on the menu for quite some time, but also used it in those, you know, uh, noodle sauce applications and things like that. Um, we have, um, oh my God, brain names are just blowing out of my mind right now. Or you have mom brain or something. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Brooks, Brooks Headley over at Superiority Burger made the most amazing, do you remember that Caesar salad dressing? That was ridiculous. Emil, yeah. our ops guy, and I drove to New York just to eat the Caesar <laughs> salad. Yeah, um, and then so for Bakery in Boston, uh, they were one of the first that really showed us the whole wide world of baking with, with tahini, yeah. tahini shortbread, tahini chocolate chip cookies. And a huge shout out to Mara Kilpatrick, who is quite possibly my favorite pastry chef in the country, and I don't say wow. that lightly. She's amazing, yeah. and, and honestly, they don't really get enough credit for being the, the godmothers to you know Middle Eastern cuisine in this country. I mean, Mike, Steve, I love you guys, Alan Chaya, <laughs> you know, all these great people, but um, more Mora and um, Mora and her team have been doing it up in Boston for oh yeah 
I, I worked blocks away from Oleana mm-hmm. when I was in college. So I, I, I just took advantage of it as much as possible. I didn't know how lucky I was to have oh it there. Um, but let, let's talk about that baking because uh, you have recipes on your site and you have mm-hmm. a tahini chocolate chip cookie. Is that blasphemous or what, what does tahini do to elevate that cookie? The tahini really adds, I think, that complexity to the flavor like we were talking about. You know, it's a little bit more sophisticated than just the oil or just the butter. Um, I'll never forget when I was living in Israel in 2012, I would go to these music festivals and you would have to bring your own snacks. And I brought Oreos covered with tahini and honey. And I'm sitting there in my tent and all these Israeli guys are like, what are you eating? And I was like, I call them tahinios. And they're like, you are ridiculous. That's not how we use tahina here. And I'm like, but taste it. It's delicious. And, you know, and they did and they loved it. And so that has what really has always inspired me is that, um, you know, tahini should be used for anything and everything. And it's really fun to experiment with it. Yeah, and I love peanut butter cookies, so similar to, uh, I can't remember, Michael, who you were saying is allergic to, to peanuts, but my husband is allergic to peanuts, and when we started this company, he was so excited because he felt like he could have that taste again, you know, that um, that mouthfeel, not a direct one-to-one, but similar enough to, to, um, to peanuts, he was just so thrilled, and you know, as it relates to peanut butter cookies, I think that these tahini chocolate chip cookies just give that, you know, feeling, that warmth of a peanut butter cookie. And I, we can't, I just want to say, we can't take credit for many of the recipes that we've put out there. We obviously fact check them um, and we try them ourselves, but we work with a lot of people who know food a lot better than we do. And we believe that that's what has helped lead to the success of our product and, and our brand um, because we defer to the folks who know best. So Daniela Roan is the one who really I think help popular popularize um, that recipe, mm-hmm. and and we want to give a nod to, to her for that. Oh yeah, and we come to you for your expertise in tahini, right? right. So it's it's fine. We we surround ourselves by people that do things better than us, and Absolutely. that's why you're here today. Um, I I love drizzling a little bit of tahini on roasted carrots, mm. and I I think I saw a carrot soup recipe on your website, and it is that you know thread. You know, once you have it with something, you, you try to figure out how to, you know, iterate, re-manipulate and put it in everything you can because <laughs> it's such a good base product. Um, it must be weird to be a condiment company or do you call yourselves a condiment company? That that was one of the hardest things that we were trying to figure out early on is how do you explain an ingredient, right? How do you market and something that we want people to use to make other things. You know, a lot of times when we would be demoing and maybe demoing a hummus or a smoothie, people are like, okay, I'll buy that hummus. And we're like, oh no, you can't buy the hummus. You have to buy the tahini and make the hummus at home. And that was really hard for people. Uh, so to kind of counter that, that's why we created that chocolate spread, right? It's because it was a prepared product that gave people the flavor of tahini and a better understanding of it. So being a condiment company has been very hard, but it is has unlimited opportunity. So it's been really fun too. And why we love our we call them partnerships with the chefs and the restaurants that we work with who really did help to highlight the versatility and the flavor of this product in amazing and complex ways because we didn't have, quite honestly, the budget with which to do that. It is really hard to show how you can use an ingredient um, without having a lot of of money behind you. And so we've worked together to help showcase just the wide array that this, um, that this ingredient can be used. I'm still not sure if it's a condiment, right? Because like, I like tahini on a tahini on its own. I will just drizzle it, but I, I don't know if I see it as similarly to ketchup as I do to, let's say an olive oil or 
I guess I'll eat olive oil on its own or a salt, you know, it's so it's somewhere between condiment and ingredient. ingredient. Yeah. But just like olive oil or very good olive oil and very good salt, you can sprinkle a little tahini on vanilla ice cream and it mm. is absolutely delicious. Greek yogurt is my favorite. Okay. I will mm. try that. I'm marking this all down for my experimentations at home. Um, I, I want to touch on a sore spot. Um, and, you know, you're gracious enough to talk about this, but recently there was a Zoom recall. And as small business owners who are so wonderfully transparent, not only about where you get your sesame from, how you process, and all the hands that it goes through, uh, one little thing that's out of your hands can really hurt a business. Mm -hmm. So can, can you explain to me what it's like to go through a recall or, uh, you know, something that airs that you can't actually have complete control of? Yeah. Um, well, when we did get the, the notice, um, it was a couple of days in which we were just, you know, processing the, the information and it, it really hurt. It really caught us off guard. We had amazing momentum going into the end of the year and it just kind of sucked the wind out of us, so to speak. Um, but then after we realized what was happening and calmed down and, and talked with our team, what we decided to focus on was what we could control. And what we could control was the way that we handled the communication and the way that we handled the messaging. And we committed to being available to our customers, telling them the truth, sharing as much information as we had available to share, and just offering ourselves to answer any questions or uncertainties that they might have had. And so it, you know, we're still dealing with, with some of that, but it's been about a month and a half now, and it started to calm down. And I do think that the overwhelming response has been, you know, just thank you for your communication and for handling it in this proactive way and giving us the information that we need to then share with whatever stakeholders may have been affected, you know, in this as well. You know what I think has been so awesome uh, about this process? Well, I, awesome might not be the word that you would expect to hear uh, <laughs> about a recall <laughs> is I've never heard more support for your product from chefs than ever before. And everyone that I know that loves it, you know, will not just secretly say it, um, but they are shouting from the rooftops in a way saying, you know, it, it is this great local, you know, sister owned business. And Jenny of Jenny Splendid was on the show, uh, you know, maybe a year ago. Um, and she had a listeria scare and had to recall tons of her ice cream. This doesn't mean the end. Uh, if anything, it means you're going to be a smarter and stronger company going forwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's been the best opportunity is just to really audit ourselves. You know, it's easy to get comfortable, but um, to make sure that we're doing everything in our power to tell people what they're getting, bring the highest quality product and make sure that it's safe to eat. I mean, it's just been uh, a great opportunity to refine that and do it even better than we were doing it before. Then is... Is it Ceylon? Ceylon? Mm -hmm. Is that to diversify your portfolio? Um, or is it something that's also just really freaking delicious? It's both. both. Yeah. <laughs> it's really freaking delicious. And it, nutritious. It, and and nutritious versatile. And, exactly. Our three-legged stool. Um, it is an insane compliment to tahina. I mean, not that they use it in the way that we do peanut butter and jelly in Israel, but they go together like PB&J. Early on, one of my favorite ways to eat tahini was with Ceylon, just mixing it straight up with Ceylon into a spread. Um, and so we love the two together. And what's happened over five years, almost six years now, is that folks, you know, we, we go back, we visit, we talk about our product, and folks ask, well, what else do you have? And 
So we kind of dug deep. We're like, we love Ceylon. There's incredible Ceylon coming out of Israel, um, better than what we were finding available in the States. And a similar story to Tahini was five years ago. Not many people know about Ceylon right now. And so we see a similar opportunity to help educate the market about an unbelievable ingredient that can be used for almost anything. And, and it's more than steamed and pressed dates, which it says on the bottle. I mean, it comes out almost like a maple syrup. Mm-hmm. Yep. Lower glycemic than uh, agave maple honey um, drizzles like a, a maple syrup. We have recipes now where we're experimenting, swapping out Ceylon for corn syrup, right? So have an unbelievable pe- pecan pie recipe, makes unbelievable marinades, barbecue sauces, or just a straight-up drizzle. I mean, Amy talked about tahini on a Greek yogurt. These days, I'm doing Ceylon on my Greek yogurt. So I even saw a cocktail recipe. Mm, yeah, we were really excited uh, for the opportunity for Ceylon to be used in cocktails because it's one of our team members, Olivia's favorite ways to do it. Our marketing coordinator challenged all of us to come up with a Ceylon recipe a couple months ago, and Olivia and her husband made this delicious whiskey cocktail, and it just goes great, or with tequila, or you know, fill in the blank. It is a really fun ingredient to have at home. Now, last question. What does sum mean? In Hebrew, sum sum means sesame. But I would say that, uh, you know, we're, we're now affectionately referred to as the sum sisters. So it takes on a, a, a bigger meaning than we ever could have imagined at this point. I know. I loved, I got an email the other day that said, dear Miss Sum. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> but thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of a, a very parallel story to how you started as a small business and grew into something bigger, um, you know, from the sesame seed eventually comes tahini. So I, I'm just looking forward to seeing where Sum goes in the future. Thank, thank you, you so much. Excellent. Thank you both for being on. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you here back next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Hungry Root, our sponsors. And if you didn't hear that ad during the break, go on to, uh, what is it? HungryRoot.com backslash food scene. That's F-O-O-D-S-E-E-N for $25 off your first two orders. That's $50 off in total. A big thank you to Cookies for the music as always and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.